listening to Mudrooms, a community storytelling event in Juneau, Alaska. For the past nine seasons, Mudrooms has been recorded live from Northern Light Church. But this year, because of COVID-19, that is not the case. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were recorded by the storytellers in their own homes, on their phones, with no live audience. The storytellers may or may not have been wearing pants at the time of the recording. Each month, Mudroom supports a local cause. This show is in support of JAM, Juno Alaska Music Matters. Please visit their website at www.junomusicmatters.com. Click on the yellow button and make a contribution to help bring the power of music and the social experience of ensemble to more than 500 Juno students. Co-hosts for this evening are Mudroom's board members, Kristen Rankin and me, Jim Fitzer. The theme for tonight's show is In Deep. This show originally aired on KTOO 104.3 in Juneau. Our first storyteller is Shelby Serdick. Shelby was born in Whitehorse and raised in Skagway, where her family has lived for four generations, five if you count her nieces and nephew. At the age of 24, she tried to get as far away from home as possible by starting graduate school at the American University of Beirut in Beirut, Lebanon, where she got in way over her head. Here's Shelby. It was December 2015, and I was packing my bags to move from Skagway to Beirut, Lebanon. I was scared and overwhelmed, and I already felt like I was in deep trouble and way over my head. The university had assured me that Beirut and the AUB campus was safe, but at that time, the war in Syria was raging. Lebanon shares a border with Syria, and over one million Syrian refugees had entered Lebanon that year to flee the conflict. ISIS also still controlled a lot of territory in Syria, and, you know, I'd seen the news stories of American citizens being beheaded by ISIS in Syria, so I was feeling kind of scared, and I did the math and found out that Beirut was actually closer to Damascus, the capital of Syria, than my hometown of Skagway was to the community of Karkros in the Yukon. And so that was stressful, not to mention the general stress of knowing that I was starting a new academic program in one of the most rigorous universities in the Arab world. Despite all of that stress, I was trying my best to reassure my family that everything was going to be okay. For extra reassurance, I told them that I would be living in the student dormitories on the AUB campus, and the AUB campus is like a fortress. It was built in the early 1800s, and it's surrounded by these huge stone walls, and every entrance has an armed guard. So I assured my grandparents that if I was in the student dormitories, I would be totally safe. But then that night, while I was packing my bags two weeks before moving to Beirut, I got an email from the student housing office notifying me that they had run out of space in the student dormitories. 
and that I would have to find my own off-campus housing. And at that moment, I knew that I was in really deep trouble because I had no idea how to find a place to live, and I had to find a place to live immediately. And even if I found a place, I had no idea how I was going to pay rent or like sign a rental agreement in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language. And so I did what any desperate millennial would do, and I got onto Facebook, and I found a Beirut Shared Flats and Apartments Facebook group and immediately messaged every single female who had posted a room available in the neighborhood near the university in the last month. I must have sent about 20 messages, and then I waited. After 24 hours, I hadn't received a single response, and I was really getting worried. Uh, so I scoured through the posts on Facebook just one more time and found one that I must have missed the first time that I had gone through. It was a post for a private room available in a shared apartment in Hamra, which is the neighborhood near the university. It was in my price range, and it was five minutes walking distance to the university. And on top of that, uh, this four-bedroom apartment would be shared if I got the room with three other AUB graduate students, each of whom was from a different country. One was from the U.S., one was from Germany, and one was from Lebanon. Also, the apartment came with two cats. Uh, and when I saw that post, I thought, yes. This is it. This is the place where I have to live. If I get this apartment, I know that everything will be okay. I'll be safe. And this will be the adventure of a lifetime. So realizing that, I also realized that I would have to write to the woman that had posted that apartment and I would have to write the best message ever. So I sat down and I sort of drafted in my mind uh, some of the main selling points about myself. And I composed the message. Ultimately, there were three selling points. Number one, I'm from Alaska. Need I say more? Number two, I am a very, very neat and tidy person, which was a complete lie. And number three, I can play the ukulele. And, you know, who doesn't love the ukulele? So I wrote this huge message, I sent it off, and I, I got a reply immediately. Um, actually, the woman wrote me back and she said, okay, that sounds great, but how are you going to get us rent? Because we are already a week late paying our rent and we're just going to take the first roommate who can pay the rent up front. So then I thought, okay, like I want this apartment how can I wire money to a foreign country? I did a Google search and I discovered Western Union. I wrote her back and said, hey, I found Western Union. There's a pickup location near your apartment. Can I just wire you the money? And she said, sure, that'll work. But you owe us three months rent up front because we pay our rent in three month cycles. And the room that I was wanting to rent was 450 US dollars a month. So that meant I would have to wire over $1,300 cash to a complete stranger in a foreign country that I had just met on Facebook. And I thought, okay, either this is going to work or it isn't, and I just have to go for it. So I messaged her back and said, that's absolutely fine. I can wire you the cash 
right now. You can pick it up in the morning. And she replied saying, sounds great, but do you maybe want to video chat first and maybe see the apartment, meet us, your future housemates? And I thought, right, yes, that would be a great idea to video chat and confirm that this apartment actually exists, that the people actually exist, and this isn't some kind of online scam. So we had the video call. I saw the place. I met the people. Ten days later, I was in Beirut. I made it to the apartment. And it turns out that the apartment was actually a complete piece of shit. Um, When I first arrived, we only had running water in the bathroom three days a week. So that meant we had to fill buckets in the kitchen and then carry the buckets to the bathroom in order to flush the toilet. Like every building in Beirut, we also had a minimum of three hours of power cuts every day, but the power cuts were usually longer. And I was always praying that the electricity wouldn't cut while I was in the elevator because we had this really scary Soviet era looking black metal cage elevator that would uh, hold a maximum of two people. And we lived on the fifth floor. So I never wanted to get stuck in there. But once I did get stuck in there for three hours, but it was okay. Um, When it rained, water would leak through the ceiling in the apartment. And once it even came through the light fixture in the living room, causing the light to explode. But despite all of that, and some of those difficult things to deal with, I think that moving to Beirut and ending up in that apartment was truly one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. Because although the apartment was crap, the people that I got to live with were wonderful. Uh, Those three flatmates and the two cats and the community of people around them truly adopted me. I spent three years living in that apartment with, with some of the most incredible people that I've ever met. And I learned that you can't always trust what you read in the news and that sometimes it's good to face your fears and just go all in. As a side note, I'm still in touch with my former housemates and They had all moved out of the Hamra apartment by the time of the explosion in Beirut two months ago, but they and their families are all okay, and I hear that the apartment is okay too. And that's the story. Beth Kurtula is a lifelong Alaskan and a Democrat who served Juneau and Southeast Alaska for 15 years in the statehouse. She says that giving speeches is way, way easier than telling stories. And she wants to thank Mudroom's board member Kristen Rankin for hanging in there with her right up to the deadline, or she never would have finished this story. Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, famously said, all politics are local. But I think that all politics are personal. This is a story about a relationship that my dad built, but that deeply paid back to me. My family has a long history in Alaskan politics. My dad, Jay, is the state's longest-serving legislator at 34 years. He's also the only person to be both Speaker of the House and President of the Senate, no small feat. 
My mother, Joyce, who is every bit the politician my dad is, worked side by side with him tirelessly for those 34 years, all as an unpaid volunteer. When I became a lawyer, I too worked as an unpaid volunteer with my dad. And I got to see the inner workings of the legislature to pull back the curtain and to watch what my dad would call the chess game and others would call the sausage making of legislation. It was a great education. So when I finally ran, I thought I knew everything about the legislature. I thought I understood everything. And I can only explain what happened in my first session by talking about a scene in a movie. In the movie Kill Bill, which I don't recommend, as it's Quentin Tarantino bloodfest, there's a scene where Uma Thurman, big, tall woman, really strong looking, is fighting Lucy Liu, a small, seemingly frail woman. And it's this big sword fight, and you just know Uma is going to slay Lucy. But somewhere along the line, Uma starts losing steam. And by the middle of the battle, where they take a ritual break, Uma is slumped over her sword, heaving. And Lucy looks up at her and goes, you didn't really think it was going to be that easy, did you? And Uma just gasps and says, yeah, I kind of thought it was. My first day on the floor, the first bill I had to vote on, I didn't know what button to push. Things were whizzing by me, motions, amendments, first, going to second, going back to second, going to third. What do we do? How do we vote? Who are the constituents? It's just a crazy-making kind of thing. So I realized about midway through my first session that I really needed some guidance. By then... Rick Halford was a Republican icon. He had served as the Republican Party's National Committee man from Alaska. He set Republican strategy for the legislature. But I also knew that he was an independent person. He was a guide. He flew his own plane. He loved the wilderness. So I went to Rick. And the minute I went in his office, and sat there for a few minutes and saw the calm way he dealt with his emails and his mail and he answered the phone and I could just breathe again. It was like a sanctuary. Day after day I'd go in reporting the litany of yet another indignity that was being heaped on my freshman legislative head and he'd laugh and give me guidance and I felt at home. But Rick didn't just let me crash in his office. Rick helped me in more ways than I'm sure I'll never know. He's the one that put me on the BP Arco Special Merger Committee, thing that to this day gives me stature. People will come up to me and say, you were on that committee? But the thing to me that was really the most meaningful is that he helped with the first cruise ship bill. Anyone in Juneau in the early 2000s could have told you that we had to do something about cruise ship pollution. And being the legislator from downtown Juneau, I thought so too. So 
I introduced to Bill. And unbeknownst to me, I had introduced the very first bill in the entire country in a state legislature on cruise ship pollution. And you would have thought all hell broke loose. If I had thought that the oil industry was difficult to deal with in the BP Arco merger, it was a magnitude greater dealing with the cruise ship industry on the first cruise ship pollution bill in a state legislature. So my bill headed rather quickly for the rocks. And it's uh, definitely stuck up on them, taken in water by the time I realized that again, I needed help. By then, the governor had put in a bill and the chair of house finance had put in a bill and things were going sideways quickly. So I went to Rick, brought the bill over to him, and carefully and thoroughly read it, and then he put in his own bill as chair of resources through the committee. Because he did that, the legislation started to take a turn, and at the end of the day, we got the nation's first state law on cruise ship pollution. Wasn't my bill, wasn't Rick's bill, it wasn't the chair of House Finance's bill, but in special session, the governor got a bill through. And I learned a lesson that if you don't need your name on it, you can get things done in the legislature. When Rick became Senate president, I started to learn more about his relationship with my dad. Rick would tell me how my dad would have handled things when he was in the Senate presidency. He'd talk about his fairness, about how he'd listen to an issue. He'd also talk about how my dad would set something up so that it would start happening and people would never even know that it was him. And he'd do this laughing and <laughs> admiring sort of way. And then I could remember my dad coming off the floor into his office, laughing about Rick, saying something about how he had done almost the same thing. When Rick left the legislature, I had another UMA moment. I had seemingly become overnight the minority leader, and things were swirling around me again. But I could look at a picture that Rick had given me his last day in the legislature and think about it. The picture is of Rick and my dad they're on the floor of the state senate, and they look a lot younger than I am now. My dad is whispering in Rick's ear, and Rick's looking straight into the camera, concentrating, as I've seen him do. And on it, Rick wrote, To Beth, this is how I learned everything I know. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Zach Rhodes. Zach worked as a commercial diver in the Gulf of Mexico for 10 years and has been living in Juneau for four years doing diving fisheries. This is a story about the very first time he went offshore. Here's Zach. When I was 19, uh, I had just graduated from a commercial diving school in Seattle. Our instructors told all of us that if we wanted to make a name for ourselves in the diving industry, uh, the Gulf of Mexico was the place to do it. 
so I found a company that was looking for teenagers with little to no job or life experience and set off for Houston, Texas. Uh, after a couple of weeks of like living out of a hotel, I found an apartment and started to kind of settle in. But I still hadn't had a chance to to get offshore yet, and I was, uh, you know, I was anxious to see if I if I had what it took. Um, so, uh, yeah. So one day I got a call to go into the office for a quarterly safety meeting thing, and when I got there, a couple things happened. Um, one was that one of our vendors was also at the meeting, and they were putting on a crawfish boil for us. And I had never had or even seen crawfish before, but I uh, found out pretty quickly that I really liked it. Uh, it's fantastic. And the other thing that happened was that I was told that the following morning I was going to be going offshore to cut a damaged boat bumper off of an oil platform. Uh, I was told it was just a one-day job, but it was something like 30 miles offshore, so I might want to bring a change of clothes, you know, just in case, in case it went a little long. So uh, after the meeting wrapped up, I went back to my apartment and I packed up my little overnight bag and had a dinner of about probably two pounds of crawfish that I brought home from earlier. And the next morning, uh, I woke up early and before I left, because uh, I'm smart, turned off all my lights and my air conditioning, because, you know, you got to save on the electricity bill. And then I was off. And it took that whole next day to get out to the oil platform that we were supposed to be working on. And when we got out there, we found out that the entire platform was actually being decommissioned. And, and that not only did they want us to cut off a boat bumper, but they also want us to cut off uh, what's called the caisson, which is probably like a 20-foot diameter steel pipe that sticks up out of the ocean floor, and it's kind of, it's essentially the, the foundation on which the, the oil platform is built on top of. Uh, and they also wanted to cut it off 15 feet below the mud line. Um, all that's to say, essentially, that, that, that took our one-day job and immediately made it about two weeks longer, which is not actually a very uncommon occurrence, and Pretty much everybody that's worked in the industry for any amount of time knows to pack for, for anything, uh, just in case. Uh, but I didn't know that. And I remember thinking on the boat ride out how odd it was that everyone had such big bags packed for an overnight job and feeling like very efficient with my little backpack with a book, one extra pair of socks, and one change of underwear. <laughs> so after about two or three days, uh, the guy whose bunk was next to mine kind of pulled me aside and was like, dude, you've got to figure something out. Like, your feet smell insane. Uh, and they, they did. They smelled insane. Uh, but we were working like 12 to 15 hour shifts every day um, with not a lot of time in between, obviously. So my, my best solution was to stay up an extra hour after, after my shift and wash that day's pair of socks and underwear kind of in an attempt to avoid making my reputation be that of the, the smelly guy on my first job. Um, so that kind of became the routine for the rest of that job. I'd work a 12 to 15 hour shift, wash my socks, sleep, and repeat. And I found that I actually really enjoyed the simplicity of living and, and working offshore. And I think it took about two and a half weeks or so to finish 
that that job, and overall things went pretty well for me. Besides my offensive smell, um, I felt I had made a pretty good impression on my coworkers and and supervisors, and that I don't know maybe I was cut out for this line of work. Um, and once the job was done, a crew boat came out to pick us up, and we loaded all our equipment on the boat, and we're on our way back home. And everyone kind of looks forward to coming back into cell service and hearing from their their wives and kids and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, I had neither of those or uh, any friends, really, at that point, for that matter. So I was a little surprised when we did come into service to see how many voicemails uh, had actually been left for me. <clears throat> and uh, four or five of them were from my um, from my apartment manager, which is kind of strange. And <laughs> even stranger was that each one was progressively more concerned sounding. You know, it was like started out kind of wanted to check on me and make sure that I was okay. And then it was, you know, something about neighbors saying there's a bad smell coming from my apartment. And the last one kind of saying something about if they didn't hear from me soon that they were going to call the police and do a, you know, like a, like a wellness check at my apartment. <laughs> um, yeah, so I decided I should probably give her a call back. And she was very, very relieved to hear from me when I did. And thankfully had not yet uh, called the police. But they had been going back and forth, uh, whether they should call them that day or, or maybe the following day. And then that just she was so glad to hear from me again and uh and that the neighbors were uh were really worried that perhaps I had died in my apartment um, <laughs> so when I finally got home, I immediately understood why uh I had left two pounds worth of crawfish carcasses <clears throat> in my trash can for two and a half weeks with the air conditioning turned off in Texas. Uh, yeah, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> um, and I had, yeah, essentially sealed my reputation as the smelly guy at home and at work at the same time. Um, God, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's a moral to the story. Uh, and I'd like to say that I got a little smarter through the years, but I'm, I, I'm not really sure that either of those are actually true. Um, but I did get a little less smelly through the years, I think. Uh, so I got that going on. Um, yeah, which is nice. Brad Robbins has lived in Juneau for almost 10 years and probably won't move away anytime soon. He tried once, but wasn't able to hack it in the big city of Palmer. And he came back with his tail between his legs. Misadventure is his passion, and he believes that our stories wouldn't be nearly as entertaining without it. We got underway mid-morning, about two hours later than we had planned, but that's pretty par for this bunch. We were headed up to Sweetheart Creek to go fishing with five people on board. Two in the party, a young couple, had just arrived in Alaska about three weeks prior and had no idea what they were about to encounter. We tried to tell them that there would be a lot of bears, but unless you've been there before, someone telling you about it doesn't really do it justice. In fact, one of my favorite things about living in Juneau is getting the opportunity to go up there with someone who's never been just to see their reaction to the bear activity. 
The trip down was pretty uneventful. We dropped a couple dungy pots at Sandy Beach and a king crab pot at Grand Island. And there were also plenty of humpback whales. In fact, the most I've ever seen in one outing. It was really cool. The boat was an older 36-foot wooden boat with a galley and a head and enough room to sleep six. It was diesel-powered, so it took about five and a half hours to make the journey. We arrived in the late afternoon, right at high tide. And if you've been there, you know that the higher the tide is, the farther up the river you can take a dinghy, and that's a good thing. The captain's been there plenty of times before, and he was really proud of himself this particular day because he felt like he'd anchored just off the ledge of the shallow water and that the dinghy ride to the mouth of the river would be short, even though the fitting for the fuel tank on the dinghy wasn't the right one and there was a real possibility that we would have to row. When we got there, there weren't any other boats around. Now, typically high tide is a good time to fish at this particular spot, and although we hadn't planned on fishing that evening, the conditions were in our favor, and there was plenty of daylight, and no one else was there, so we figured we'd go up and fish for a bit to see if there were any fish left, since it was pretty late in the summer. Well, we got into some fish, and the bears didn't disappoint. The young couple were exhilarated, since we gave them the job of fending off the bears while we fished. You know, it seems like everyone wants to see a bear until they actually see a bear. But they did a great job. They banged on buckets and blew the air horns and generally kept them at bay. In the end, we counted nine bears and 40 fish, and we didn't lose a single fish to the bears, so that's always a success. We headed back to the boat just after dark. While we'd been fishing, two other boats had arrived and anchored for the night. One looked like it was there to fish, and the other more like a miniature cruise boat that had clients on it. The evening went swell. We had chicken alfredo for dinner and beer and cribbage for dessert. And we were pretty tired from fishing, so we decided to turn in so we could get up early to catch more fish in the morning. So we shut it down and crawled into our sleeping quarters. Now, I usually lay on my side when falling asleep, but after about 10 minutes of laying there, I noticed that I was having trouble balancing on my hip. I was having to actively adjust to prevent myself from rolling onto my back. I didn't think much of it because I thought it was just the water rocking me. But then a utensil fell to the floor from the counter in the galley. And then a pan. About the time the pan stopped clanging, the captain exploded from the V-berth. Everybody out of the boat! Everybody out of the boat! So we all jumped out of bed and put pants and shirts on, not quite realizing what was happening, but the volume and tone of his voice ensured us that something was very wrong. We soon found out that we had anchored too close to the shore, and as the tide was going out, we were being left on dry beach. It wouldn't have been such a big deal, except for the fact that the boat's keel, while not super deep, spans a good length of the hull. And we learned from the captain that, in the most exuberant way, that we were in real danger of rolling over and the boat taking on water and essentially sinking as the tide came back up if we didn't prevent it from rolling. So we mustered on the back deck while the captain, wearing only a base layer, immediately jumped into the water to survey the situation. As soon as he determined that it was too late to move the boat under its own power, it was time to get as much weight as possible off the boat. We also got on the VHF to see if anyone on the other boats could give us a hand, but we couldn't get an answer. We deployed the dinghy and loaded it with the cooler full of fish we had just caught and drug it up to the bow and tied it off on one side for counterbalance. By this time, there were four of us on the back of the boat, running back and forth as the boat tipped from side to side. 
It was as if we were collectively one person trying to ride a seesaw. Everyone was terrified, including the young couple, who had clearly gotten more than their money's worth of excitement thus far. All the while, the captain was instructing us with enthusiasm to look for anything rigid that he could put under the sides to help stabilize the vessel. We handed him the oars, and he promptly put the blades into the scupper, broke them off, and shoved what was left into the sand and against the side of the boat to serve as stilts. After all the oars were gone, we handed him a milk crate, another empty cooler, and a couple of toolboxes, all of which he shoved under the boat as far as he could. At some point during all the commotion, someone found a high-powered bottle rocket. This was enough to get the attention of the other boats. They yelled through the darkness to ask if we needed any help, and we gladly took them up on it. Within ten minutes, there were two people from each boat there to help. Although everyone except the captain agreed that there wasn't very much anyone could do at that point, and that the outcome was in fate's hands. The Good Samaritans did, however, rescue the crew from the boat, which had the dual purpose of, not al of allowing us to get warm and getting weight off the boat. The captain, of course, stayed with the boat, despite offers to go spend the night on another boat. Three of us went to the boat with the tourists, while I went to the boat with the locals, who treated me like a king. I kept checking on the captain every ten minutes or so, as I was afraid he'd get hypothermic walking around the water all night like he was. Each time I looked, though, I could see his headlamp on the move and an occasional expletive shouted, so I knew that he was okay and still in character, so I didn't worry about him. In the end, the tide rose again at some point in the night, and the boat floated with minimal damage. We woke up about seven and returned to it and had a nice breakfast. During breakfast, it was decided that we had enough adventure for one trip, and that had enough fish to call the trip a success, so we didn't need to fish that day. You know, someone once told me that a real adventure begins at the exact moment when you wish you were safe at home. About nine hours into this particular one, we decide to call it quits and head it that way. Thanks. You are listening to Mudrooms, Juno's community storytelling event. These stories were recorded by the storytellers in their own homes, on their phones, without our usual live audience. The theme for tonight's show is In Deep. If you would like to contribute to one of our upcoming Mudrooms, please visit www.mudrooms.org. Our next storyteller is Mike Levine. This month marks Mike's 19th anniversary of living in Juneau. He plans to celebrate his 20th with an enormous, in-person, end of the pandemic blowout next fall. He misses all of you and hereby extends an official invitation to the party to everyone listening. Here's Mike. For as long as I can remember, I've wanted to have a dog. My mom tells the story of when I was four or five years old and I, I got head lice and washing my hair with apple cider vinegar uh, didn't cure it. It might have scarred me for life, but it didn't stop the lice. And so we had to go to the pediatrician and get a prescription for the lice shampoo and then to the pharmacy to get, um, to get the shampoo. And apparently uh, my mom was standing in line at the, at the counter with my little sister in her arms waiting to get the shampoo. And I was running up and down uh, the aisles screaming at the top of my lungs, woof, 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 I'm a dog. 
and I have fleas. Um, fast forward a, a couple of decades and I moved to Alaska. And you know that old, that old saying, when you move to Southeast, you get a broken down Subaru, a pair of extra tufts and a brown dog. I got the first two, but the brown dog never came my way. Um, I was lucky though, for the first while I lived here, I um, lived with roommates who had dogs. So I had all the advantages of having a pup without any of the responsibilities, which was a pretty ideal situation. Um, then eventually I got engaged and moved in with my fiance and something about um, that made it seem like I was grown up enough to have my own dog. But we didn't really do anything about it until one year on my birthday, uh, my then wife said to me, uh, for your birthday, I'm giving you the present of you can get a dog. Um, and that might sound strange, but but it was a pretty neat, neat thing. And we spent some time looking at breeds and thinking about what kind of dog we wanted and not really doing anything about it. And then I was back east in Washington, D.C. for a, a trip for work. And uh, I went to um, an adoption event organized uh, by my old friend Mira for her organization, Lucky Dog. Um, and if you're ever looking for a place to donate a little bit of money, I highly recommend Lucky Dog. They take uh, dogs from kill shelters and, and adopt them out. So we went to this event, ostensibly looking for a little white dog for my mom. And we pulled up in the parking lot. I got out of the car and from 200 yards away, I saw this brown dog and he saw me. And it was like the rom-com music started and the disco lights started to spin. Um, and it was just love at first sight. Uh, he was everything I wanted in a dog. Floppy ears, uh, brown shaggy fur, a uh, big doofy smile. And um, I went up to the lady with him and talked to her and filled out an adoption form. And there were a couple of people ahead of me on the list. And I told her that was fine because I wasn't really sure how I was going to get this dog that they named Sam back to Alaska. Anyway, um, a couple of days later, I was in my hotel room and Lucky Dog called and they said, we don't really think the couple of people ahead of you are right for, for Sam and would you be interested in seeing him again? And I thought about it for a little while and then said yes. And I went to the vet where he was being boarded um, and they went to the back to, to get him and I sat in this chair. And uh, before I knew it, the dog came bounding out of the back, jumped over the uh, little barrier and wrapped me in what I can only describe as the biggest dog hug I have ever gotten paws behind my shoulders and he looked me in the eyes, licked my face and said to me, oh my God, it's you, you came back to rescue me. Um, and I took him outside for a little walk, signed the paperwork, paid the fee and um, brought him back to my mom's house and then had to figure out how to get him home to Alaska. You know, bought a dog carrier, um, changed my flights and, and we had an adventure, but he was great all the way um, to, to the airport and in the hotel in Seattle and all the way back home. And when we got here, I'm pretty sure he thought he won the dog lottery. You know, he had squirrels to chase and, and me, you know, this dog seemed to think I made the, um, sunrise in the West and the, uh, sunrise in the East and set in the West. And, um, and we renamed him whiskey cause he was whiskey colored and it eventually he, he learned to be part of the family um, and he definitely, he was a pretty good dog for the most part. Um, and he was always good with people. He got into several porcupines, um, swallowed a piece of a tennis ball 
and definitely would get into some pretty significant dog disagreements. Lots of barking, and he was never the dog who would who would stop. Um, we'd have to have to figure out how to get him off the other dog, um, and that was sort of okay. Um, and then um, when my son was born, um, whatever changed in our in our family structure and our ability to play time, uh, spend time with him, those dog disagreements turned into dog fights, and uh, he would go after other dogs. And, um, and, uh, eventually one night while my then wife and son were out of town, um, he got loose in the yard and this poor old black dog was walking by with his owners and whiskey jumped the fence and jumped on this dog. And I had to run out there and get in the middle of the dog fight. And eventually I got my forearm down on his throat and I looked him in the eyes and he was just somewhere else. And that, that instant, that one thing I'd always been sure of, uh, that he would never hurt another person I, I wasn't sure of anymore. So I apologized profusely to the couple, brought the dog back inside, called my wife and said, I'm going to take the dog uh, tomorrow to have him put down because we're not going to be people who have a dog that, that bites a person or bites a kid. She talked me out of that. We found a friend to take care of him for a while. And eventually we found a guy from Haynes who was looking for a dog just like Whiskey. Um, lived on a lot of property, came down, met the dog. Uh, Whiskey seemed to like him and um, and went right with this guy into the van and off to Haynes. And I've never seen him since. I get reports or got reports periodically from people who might have seen him in Haynes and that he was doing well. But I, I was never really wanting to see him again. Um, and, you know, one day, uh, one day I'll, I'll have another dog again. But I, I'm not sure um, it'll ever be the same. I'm not sure there'll ever be that love at first sight. And I'm not sure I could get in as deep with, uh, with another dog as I was with Whiskey. Rich Moniak is a member of the Mudroom Storyboard and has lived in Juneau since 1990. Twice in his life, he's enjoyed living on waterfront property in southeast Alaska. One was from July 1997 to November 1998, when, as the project manager for the Mendenhall Glacier Visitor Renovation, he spent every day in an office trailer beside the lake. The other, which is the setting for tonight's story, was the two summers he worked out of a camp on Prince of Wales Island that was only accessible by boat, float plane, and helicopter. The pilot pointed to a possible landing zone, and our team leader gave him a thumbs up. He circled a few times, slowly descended, and briefly hovered above the ground before finally touching down. With the blade still spinning, I exited from the back seat, held my cap on my head, ducked, and followed the team leader forward so the helicopter pilot could be sure we were far enough away. I watched it lift off and fly away, and listened as the sound of its engines gave way to silence. It felt like a scene from the TV show MASH, except I was standing in a muskeg on Prince of Wales Island surrounded by the tall spruce and hemlocks of the Tongass National Forest. That's how my first day of field work in Alaska began almost 40 years ago. I was an engineer doing road location work for the U.S. Forest Service. I knew the roads were being built to clear-cut old-growth trees, and I was naive enough to think that there was a right way that could be done. Years later, I felt guilty, though. I foolishly imagined the trees would still be standing if I didn't take the job. Kind of like Tyler in Never Cry Wolf. At the end of his summer studying wolves in the Arctic, he says, By the act of watching them with the eyes of a man, I pointed the way for those who followed. 
Before it bothered my conscience, though, it was a job I hated in the morning and loved in the afternoon. The day often began with cold, steady rain. We'd get dropped off deep in the forest anywhere from 3 to 15 miles from camp. We always traveled in pairs, each of us carrying about 25 pounds of gear. It included everything we'd need for spending a night in the forest in case fog or, or high winds prevented a helicopter pickup at the end of the day. We were each supposed to have a two-way radio to communicate with the chopper pilots and dispatchers, and with each other in case we separated. The one tool we always carried in our hands was a Sandvik bush axe, which was like a cross between a machete and a hatchet. And of course, we wore heavy rubber raincoats and pants. It didn't take long to be annoyed by the squadrons of bugs. Tired from fighting the brush on soggy slopes, and soaked from sweat and the rain that seeped down my back. But I remember exactly when none of that bothered me anymore. It was the moment I felt like the trees were watching, as if their silence held centuries of stories they wanted me to hear. My second summer of field work, I teamed up with Sam, who was there for his fourth season. He grew up in the north woods of Michigan. We got along okay, but because I came from the jungle of suburban highways and houses north of Boston, I often resented feeling like a greenhorn next to him. We worked out of a remote camp with two foresters named Bill and Rob. Their job was to locate the areas to be clear-cut. Sometimes they'd mark difficult stream crossings they wanted us to check out. That's what Sam and I were looking for late one afternoon. We were dropped off in the morning at a high elevation about four miles from camp. We expected to finish our work within a mile of the beach, follow the creek out, and get a boat ride back to camp. That also meant we had a lighter load, and we each took turns carrying the one pack we brought. When we found the creek, we followed it downstream until it dropped into a steep V-notch. We split up. He crossed it, and then we both headed further down looking for the flagging left by Rob and Bill. The notch grew wider and deeper every step of the way. When I found the flagging, I waited for Sam to show up on the other side, which was quite a distance away. He never did. That's when I realized it was stupid not to bring two radios. I went further downhill on my side, then back to the top, where we split up, then down the other side. No sign of Sam. I wondered if he was looking for me on the side I started, so I went back to the top, crossed, and walked back down. Still no Sam. I began to worry that he went down into the notch, fell and got hurt, or maybe ran into a bear. Then I heard the helicopter. I couldn't radio the pilot, but I knew he'd soon drop Rob and Bill off at camp. I decided to go get them to help me look for Sam. Because I didn't have a radio, I veered in the direction of the camp instead of following the stream down to the beach. That would save part of the walk along the shoreline but it wound up taking me through an area that had been logged from the beach 25 years earlier. It was dense and slow going. I tripped and fell several times, scratched my face on a low spruce limb, and grew more anxious. When I reached the water, the shore was narrow and rocky. When I got around the corner and I could see the camp, I started yelling as loud as I could so Robert Bill would hear me. I slipped once and banged my knee. Then I saw Rob and Bill walking down the dock toward the boat. Sam was behind him. All that time I'd been worrying that he was hurt. I was pissed, 
so pissed that I lobbed my Sandvik in the direction of the boat as it approached. It landed in the water 50 yards or more short. When the boat pulled up, Sam said, what'd you do that for? I asked, why'd you leave me behind? I was so mad that I refused to hear his explanation. He told Rob to take us back to where the creek met the sea. Sam and I got out of the boat and I followed him upstream. Not too far into the forest, we came upon a beautiful waterfall that he encountered when he hiked out. And against the backdrop of the sounds of the forest, he told me what had happened. After Sam crossed the creek and found the flagging, he noticed more going away from the notch and followed it. Somehow I missed that. It led to a bigger creek with enough flagging to indicate that was the spot Robin Bill wanted us to check out. When he went downstream, he came to a spot where the two creeks met. He went back up and waited for me, but when I didn't show up, he followed the creek down to the beach like we planned, assuming I'd end up there if I followed the other creek. That waterfall became known as Sam's Falls to people who later worked out of that camp. The creeks were named Wright Creek and Run Creek on the road construction drawings. And after I swallowed my pride, Sam became one of the best friends I ever had. Our last storyteller of the evening is Mike Graney. Mike has been a professional guide internationally since 1986 and has worked on mountains, rivers, and oceans from Nepal to New Zealand. Other hats he wears fit the role of wilderness therapist, folklorist, and a presenter of the practices of yoga, tai chi, and meditation. He writes poetry and essays when he's not out playing in the rain, wind, and snow. Mike has lived overseas in a number of places, but kept coming back to Alaska to get deeper into it all. In January of 2020, he moved to Juneau after 10 years basing out of New Zealand and just in time for the fun. He spent months of his life paddling in southeast Alaska and loves the stillness and quiet of the place, as well as the wildlife and people. Here's Mike. Back in 1991, I was invited to join an elite group of paddlers on an exploratory down to Honduras where we were going to set up a ecotourism business based on whitewater and supporting the Manatee Refuge and the Pico Benita National Park. We'd been invited down there by a fellow named Pepe who was instrumental in setting up some great environmental protection laws. He happened to have been educated in Colorado and had a real affinity for whitewater. He loved it. And he swore up and down that Honduras was full of the most magnificent whitewater in Central America. Well, we did a little looking at the maps and decided he could be right. And Jay and Z and a couple other people went down in November. And in January, I loaded up my mid-sized Dodge pickup truck with the rest of the raft, life jackets, paddles, and sundry items, including my own kayaking gear. Put Jolt's girlfriend in the front with me. We barely fit and proceeded to drive nine days down the Pan American Highway to Honduras, fueled mostly on chocolate-covered coffee beans. Sure enough, Honduras was everything you imagined. It wasn't my first time in the jungle, but oh my God, was it a beautiful jungle. Just the light itself had its own personality, like liquid green-gold light dripping off the leaves. The water was clear as crystal, and the white water was excellent. Never mind, it was a drought year. About three months into it, so in about March, we had a little lull in the 
business, and I decided it was time to go looking for other rivers. The head guide gave me permission. I was packing up the truck, and J and Z, they said, hey, man, we want to go with you. I don't know that they really did, but I think FOMO got the better of them, and they just threw their gear into the back of my truck, and the back of my little pickup truck was full of three kayaks, three big fellas' gears, food for a week, and the three of us crammed into the little single cab. I think it took about 30 seconds before Jonathan said, this is too small. Your truck is too small. I would have said something like, well, at least I have a truck. Let's go. Being the eternal optimist, I was sure we were in for a good thing. I mean, we were getting paid for this. Off we went up into the Pine Highlands, driving higher and higher up to 6,000 feet or so in these dirty, dusty roads. It wasn't long before we were all covered in this fine silt, like glacial till, but a little grittier, sweating on each other. Jonathan was not happy. That night, we camped by the side of the road. It was too hot to sleep in the tent, but we were too scared of the snakes not to. I mean, after all, the locals all said, they're all deadly poisonous, and we believed them. They probably were. Who knows? There were certainly a lot of snakes squished on the road. Day two, Jolt started complaining. It was ugly. I managed to keep it together pretty well until day four. Things were nasty. I was stuck in the middle between these two guys. We'd been sweating on each other for three days. Things were ugly. People were saying mean things. I couldn't figure it out. I mean, we were still getting paid to explore. We came down this hill, Jonathan and Jolt just talking over me. I was feeling pretty hurt. I'd brought the truck down, all the gear down. Anyways, there we are. We're coasting around this turn, and there's this giant plop in front of us with a magical message from above, Cerveza. Oh, my God, we're saved, I thought. Pull over. Let's get a beer, I said. No, said Jonathan. No? Beer and no? That wasn't part of my lexicon back then. I'm like... You're crazy. This is my truck. I reached over. I grabbed the keys, turned the ignition off, pulled the keys out. The truck coasted to a stop about 50 yards from the palop. I climbed over Jolt and walked in, imagining a cold beer. Walked up to the bar and ordered a uh, beer, and the bartender looked at me. Didn't do anything. I, I ordered a beer a second time. Kind of shakily, the only sound in the place, he took a beer out, popped the cap, and set it on the bar. I wasn't paying much attention. I took that cold, sweated beer on my hand and put it on my lips and took a sip that cut through four days of dust and bitching right out of my mouth. Oh, I turned around and froze. There in the palapa, what I hadn't seen was about 60 guerrilla warriors, soldiers, whatever. There were about 30 on one side, 30 on the other. Red armbands on one side, black armbands on the other. Sandinistas and Contras. I remembered Pepe telling us not to go to the Nicaraguan border. Oh my God, we must be on the Nicaraguan border, I thought. Two fellows stood up on the left, two fellows stood up on the right. They surrounded me on the bar. I turned around and ordered another beer. The bartender put the beer down. I looked over my shoulder, I'm like, you guys want a beer? They nodded. They were handed beers. The one said CIA. The other said FBI. <laughs> I choked on my beer. I'm like, no, I'm a guide. 
I'm here looking for whitewater and exploring your beautiful country. FBI said one. CIA said the other. I'm like, no, no, no. I went on to explain what a guide is, what I was looking for, and so far as whitewater goes, they began to figure it out. Their men were staring at us. Por favor, una cerveza por todos los hombres, I said. Everybody got a beer. I paid for 60 beers. It cost me about 20 bucks. All of a sudden, the four people around me started talking really fast in Spanish, and two words kept coming up. El subterráneo y Rio Platano. I had it. They told me about this river that had gone underground and that the only party that ever tried to run it was killed. This is for me, I thought. I looked around. Everybody was out of their beers. I ordered another round. Jonathan and Joel came in. They walked over to me, as clueless as I was, probably. I shook my head desperately and motioned for them to sit down by the side. Bartender brought them a beer. Ordered a third round of beers for everyone. A fourth round of beers. Get any music, huh? I said. You got any music? Sure, said the fellow behind the bar. He put on the music coming out of the tinny loudspeakers. Te gusta baila? Said somebody. I said, yeah, I like to dance. The tables cleared. People stood up. They were dancing. They were armed and dancing. They were drinking beers and dancing. I looked at the two, four fellows surrounding me. I said, hey, you know, I got to go pee. They made room for me to walk out. I held my beer, walked past the table. Jonathan and Jolton said, meet me in the truck. Turned out I did have to pee, which was really frustrating. So I had a quick pee, jumped in the truck. Jonathan and Jolt leapt into the back, turned the ignition. Thank God the truck started and drove off. Made it to Tegucigalpa, the capital, that night. Jonathan and Jolt didn't say another word to me. They got in taxis the next morning and flew back. I stayed in Tegucigalpa and got information on the Platano and the Subterraneo. The next year I went back and ran it. We didn't die. But we did find the river. We were in deep. Thank you for listening to Mud Rooms, a community storytelling event in Juneau, Alaska. If you would like to tell your story on Mud Rooms or would like information about our next community storytelling event, please visit www.mudrooms.org. And please support our beneficiary for this month, Juno Alaska Music Matters, by visiting their website at www.junomusicmatters.com and making a donation. Your contribution will help bring the power of music and the social experience of ensemble to more than 500 Juno students. Audio production for this show was by Rich Moniak. Additional help came from Mudroom's board members, Alita Buss, Jeff Smith, David Noon, and Kristen Rankin. For Mudrooms, I'm Jim Fitzer, and we'll see you next time on Mudrooms.